and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. It's spooky season, and we would be remiss if we didn't explore a bit the things that make us unsettled and feel that four-letter word, fear. Our guest this week, Tim Wagoner, is a horror and dark fantasy writer who's been recognized in his field with awards such as the Shirley Jackson and the Bram Stoker Award. He is also an educator at heart. He is a professor at Sinclair College in Dayton, Ohio, where he teaches a wide variety of writing classes, from basic composition all the way up to novel writing and tips for getting published. He has recently published a book that is a comprehensive guide to the craft of writing horror fiction called Writing in the Dark. Tim talks to us about why dinosaurs were the thing as a little boy that made him first interested in reading, how empathy is an ingredient that distinguishes good horror from bad horror writing, why the darkness is a blank space that inspires his imagination, and all about the devil's bargain that writers make. We are recording with Tim Wagner, who is a an award-winning horror writer from Dayton, Ohio, and he has joined us to talk about his writing. Tim, thanks so much for being here with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we appreciate you taking time out of your beautiful Saturday to talk with us. Tell us a little bit um, about yourself and your reading life as a kid. What what interested you about books and writing? Well, first time I can remember becoming really interested is it was before I could actually read. And I'd sit on my dad's lap and he would read books about dinosaurs to me. And I got to the point where I could recognize dinosaurs' names by the shape of them. You know, I didn't know letters yet. I had no clue how to read, but I could recognize the shape. And I remember I told my dad, reading must be some kind of like magic of the eyeballs because I just couldn't do it. (laughs) But I was fascinated by dinosaurs, by this idea that these things, you know, once were real and they lived just right where I lived and walked where I walked. It's, It's almost like living ghosts in a way. So that was my beginning of not only falling in love with reading, but falling in love with things that are just kind of strange and wonderful. Is that how your interest in horror and fantasy developed? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, anything that would spark my imagination as a kid and and still, I mean, that's the way I prefer to read. And so, like I said, the, the dinosaurs sparked my imagination because they were real, but they're not there which for a kid is kind of a weird thing. You know, it's some, it's like uh, believing in ghosts or, or having faith in a deity or something. You know, it's everybody tells you it's there, but it's not there. You know, my dad likes science fiction and fantasy. And so we would watch, you know, I'm 56. So when this was back when TV was just like three channels. And so if a, a science fiction movie or a horror movie came on, you know, on regular TV, it wouldn't be too intense. And so they'd let me watch it. I remember being again, around four and watching Frankenstein meets the Wolfman with my family. And I was fascinated <laughs> with the, the idea that these two monsters actually lived in the same world and could meet. It just never occurred to me. 
that they, they could do that. Yeah, just from a very early age, anything that was just weird or strange just really fascinated me. I'm just curious. I have two sons and Amy has two sons. And I think both of us have experienced seeing boys go through a period where they're not really as interested in reading. Did you go through that at all as you got older and got to be a teenager or, or young adult? Yeah, it's interesting that you said that. I, never, I have two daughters, so I haven't really experienced that, even though one isn't a big reader. But that did happen to me. It was sometime between fifth and seventh grade, maybe something like that. I'm not really sure why. I just fell away from reading, watched more television. And then one day, sometime in seventh grade, I started reading comic books. And that got me back into reading you know, at book books by that point. But there was a time when I just didn't read at all. I think back on it sometimes and I'm really not sure why. So Hmm. it makes me wonder now if it's like a developmental thing for males, maybe. Well, tell us about how your career as a writer developed. Was that something that you went to school and you thought, I want to be a writer or is it something accidental? Well, you know, like a lot of creative people, I tried all sorts of different things along the way. You know, I was in the high school band. Because I got into comics for a while, I thought I wanted to be an artist. And I was in drama club in high school, too. Uh, When I was in sixth grade, just so I had some art to practice, I started doing a little comic book featuring my friends and myself as superheroes because I figured if I put them in there, they'd read it. (laughs) At least they have a a small audience. Instant audience. Right. But they all kept talking about how bad my art was, but they liked the stories. And it used to frustrate me because it's like, no, I'm not trying to be a writer. I'm trying to be an artist. But somewhere along the line, um, whether it was just because of, uh, you know, writing in English classes or a recognition that no matter what I was doing, I was making up stories or dealing with stories somehow. Somewhere along the way at about like my junior or senior year in high school, I started thinking about becoming a writer more seriously. And then uh, when I started in college, I started as an acting major, but almost right away within that, in the first quarter, I'd realized that acting wasn't something I wanted to do. I didn't want to spend my life saying somebody else's words. And Mm -hmm. so I started shifting over to uh, educationally studying more English and stuff, but I had already been writing short stories and I finished my first not publishable in any way novel when I was 19. So, and I just kept on going from there. Do you still have that unpublished novel in a drawer somewhere? Yes, I do. <laughs> that one was, uh, printed out an old dot matrix printer, but yeah, I still have it. Oh, wow. Have you ever thought about going back and trying to redo it to make it something that you would like to publish? Or it's it's just sort of a nostalgia to have it in a drawer, and that was the first attempt. Yeah, it's one of my learning novels. Some people are fortunate. They get their first novel published. It turns out fine. But it's more common for writers to have a number of learning novels. It's hard to go back and revise them because from the, the very structure, the foundation of it is not good. <laughs> <It's>, mm. <laughs> so there's not really anything to build on there. I mean, you might be able to go ahead and pull out an idea or two. Look, I'm going to be writing. It's not due to my publisher until January 31st. I'm going to start it soon. But it comes from an idea that popped into my head back then. I just never found a place for. So, you know, sometimes you can, you know, revisit those old ideas, but to actually revise a piece of writing that I'd written back then, oh, I don't think. I don't think <laughs> well, when were you first published? And the piece that you published, was it in the horror genre or was it something else? The very first thing I had published, I did a short story when I was a junior in high school for a creative writing class. And I actually kind of stole an idea from a horror comic. The horror comic had this idea of like Santa and the elves were all dead except for this one elf. 
and the one elf was still trying to keep the tradition on, but he was kind of a gnomish dwarvish sort of thing. And it was more like a horror story. And I thought they kind of missed the boat on that because what if you really were like the last elf and what if you really were trying hard to keep this going, even though, you know, you can't do it by yourself. So I took the idea and I made it more of a serious story. And uh, I think I called it the, it might've just been the last Christmas elf. I can't remember. And I wrote it for class and the teacher liked it so well. She, she said, I don't want to say who wrote it, but it's really, really good. And if this person wants to read it, fine. But if you don't, I'll read it. And I was too embarrassed to say anything. So she read it. And then my little high school, evidently, I didn't know had an author of the month because suddenly I was author of the month. And I was like, what? And then I got <laughs> contacted by a small little weekly newspaper to do an interview. And you know, I went over to the reporter's house. I put on a suit because I had no idea how you're supposed to dress for an interview. And then they published the story in the, the newspaper as well. So that one I always count as my first publication. Didn't get paid for it. And I don't know if anybody ever read it, to be honest. But it, it was the kind of thing where I felt like really validated that my words were good enough for other people to want to read. You know, you wrote for newspapers and as an editor. So is that professionally where your trajectory went and then you kept doing creative writing when you weren't working as sort of a nonfiction writer? Yeah, you know, I, I started working for a weekly newspaper because I wanted to learn so much about writing because at that point I also wanted to be, become a teacher. So I wanted to learn as much about all types of writing as I could. And I was just looking to, you know, have a summer job in between my, you know, my years at college. And it was hard to keep producing fiction when I spent all day long writing other stuff. Um, it was a good experience though, because it taught me more about getting outside of my own imagination and especially getting outside of recycling stuff I'd read or seen on TV and the movies. It gave me a, more practice in going out, talking to real people, seeing real things, and then finding ways to write about them. It also gave me practice in not second guessing myself as I wrote because there just wasn't time. You know, I was only allowed to work 40 hours a week, so no overtime. And all the newspaper had to be put together on a Tuesday and the stories didn't come together till Tuesday morning usually. So I had to write fast and I had to make sure to fill up my part of the little paper. So I had to write long too. And so it just helped me write without hesitating, really. Um, a lot of writing is just making choices and decisions one after the other. And I, I didn't have any time to belabor any of them. And so that really you know, helped me later on when I was writing more professionally uh, in terms of fiction. So you write primarily dark fantasy and horror. What would you say is the difference between writing those two types of fiction? Like I said earlier, I always like anything that's strange and weird. But there's also something sort of metaphorically about the darkness because it's like a blank canvas. You can imagine anything that's there. You know, anybody that's woken up in the middle of the night and thinks they heard a sound and you look around and you start seeing all these shapes and you think all that stuff's there. In the daylight, there's not as much room for imagination, I guess. Uh, you know, dark fantasy and horror, they overlap. Uh, dark fantasy tends to be a little more magical and maybe not quite as scary, but there's still, you know, level of darkness to it. And horror could be realistic. You know, you could be dealing with murderers or whatever, but it tends to go more toward the darker elements. And to me, I like it because even though fantasy in general can spur my imagination, like I said, I like the, the, the dark aspects of it. It just, for some reason, sparks my imagination. It might be because a lot of the horror writers I've talked to are people that also are just aware of the dangers around them. They're not necessarily <laughs> super paranoid, but it's kind of where their mind goes first. That sometimes drives my wife nuts because the first thing that I'll think of is like, what could go wrong with something? Or, <laughs> you know, so she'll say like, let's do this and I'll go, but what if this happens? And she's like, uh, 
but I can help <laughs> it. This one pops into my head first. So I, I think there's like a, a combination of those things that, at least for me, that kind of leads me to horror. Do ideas just pop in your head or do you see things like what you're talking about? Like you always are thinking about the worst case scenario or do you see articles or things like that pr- that provide inspiration for you? Yeah, all of that. It, it, the, okay. The come from everywhere. A lot of times it's seeing things out in the real world, which has been a bummer the last five months since I've not been out in the real <laughs> world very much. But, you know, I'll often see like a sign that doesn't make sense to me or I'll see people doing something that puzzles me. One week years ago, I saw two different men, two different times, two different places walking backwards. They were kind of of (laughs) older men. I wondered if it was like a balance thing. Maybe their doctors gave them to do, but I have no idea. Uh, It was very strange. And so, you know, I just had that image of seeing somebody walking backwards. And eventually I used it as a, you know, the central image in a story. When you mentioned thinking about what could happen, worst case scenarios, the first thing that popped in my head, I've got anxiety. And I'm like, I should really be a creative writer because I can imagine all these terrible things happening. So are you by nature sort of an anxious person or do you feel like that has anything to do with the type of person who might like horror and and dark fantasy? You know, maybe people like especially the college where I teach, they talk about how calm I am. And sometimes I think about it being like the patients in the movie Awakenings where they had tremors so bad it looked like they were frozen because they were happening so fast. <laughs> but I sometimes wonder if all my anxiety is like going so fast it seems like calmness to people. Horror writers tend to be really calm because we get a lot of this stuff out when we write. You know, as you process anxieties on the page and work through them or just do it in your reading too. You know, I think there's a wonderful catharsis that goes on there too. So horror writers tend to be like the sweetest, mildest people you'd ever want to meet. My wife is not a horror fan, but she loves going to horror conventions because of how sweet everybody is. Because of the level of of catharsis we all get through the writing and the reading of horror. Well, I would imagine there's some amount of, I would think empathy is part of that too, that you can feel what other people feel. And that's a part of being a gentle, sweet, person, I would think. Yeah. That's one of the things that divides, you know, good horror from not so good horror is the the empathy, you know, horror that's not so good. The people will just exist to be kind of cut down like, like video game characters. Mm. You know, they're, they're just nothing but images, but in general, you know, good horror writing, it's like any kind of writing, you have empathy for the characters. And if you're going to put them through some pretty terrible things, you better have some empathy for them in order for it to, to ring true for readers or, or to move them, you know, beyond it just being like a video game. So several of your shorter pieces of fiction, a novella that you wrote called The Men Upstairs and a long piece of fiction called The Winter Box have either been nominated for or won awards for horror fiction, such as the Shirley Jackson Award and the Bram Stoker Award. But you've also written many novels. Is one form easier for you to write than the others? Yeah, novels are easier. Um, Are they? Yeah, you wouldn't think so because they're so big. But because they're so big, there's more room. With a short story, it's so compressed. And I don't write poetry, but I think that would be even harder because of the compression of it. I always feel like short stories are, I can feel my mind kind of cramping whenever I'm trying to write them. (laughs) It's like, it's so difficult. I can do it. I've at this point published close to 200 short stories, but they always feel like more of an effort. Novels feel easier. And plus novels, as you start to create them, there are things to build on more and more as you go. Even if you have it plotted out. You might introduce a character, introduce an event, and suddenly get a new idea about how to expand on it. But in a short story, you got to be careful because you can't expand very far. And so you have to fight that temptation the whole time you're writing a short story. So yeah, I think novels are easier, at least for me. 
how do you make the decision whether something is going to be a short story or a novel? Is it like a conscious decision that you make or does the ideas tell you? Does yeah, that make sense? Yeah. Oh, it makes perfect sense. When I first started out, it would just be either what I felt like trying to do. I wanted to write a short story or wanted to write a novel or be the idea would lead me. But for years now, you know, for 20 years, I haven't written a book that I haven't pre-sold. So I've already got, this is going to be a book and here's the deadline for it. And I'm fortunate enough that a lot of times editors will come to me and say, could you do a short story for anthology? And so I already know that I have to sit down and do a story and I know what the deadline is. And sometimes the anthology is a theme like might be stories about dinosaurs. And so I know that I have to do a story about a dinosaur. So that already points me in a direction. Every once in a while, I get an idea that's just a short story idea. And then I just write it and send it to a magazine and hope for the best. But a lot of the work I do is kind of, it's already kind of predetermined whether it's going to be a novel or a short story. So tell us a little bit about what your steps are when you're working on something. Do you have a certain room that you're in? Do you just write and let everything come out and then go back and edit? What is that like? Yeah, I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what I want to write and imagining scenes and imagining dialogue. So I guess a lot of that drafting happens in my head. And for a novel, I'll tend to have an outline, usually because I have to sell out non-outline first. So I already have one that exists before it's time to write. Short stories, you know, they're shorter, so there's more room to just kind of explore and see what happens. But even then, I often have a few sentences, you know, scratched down in terms of an outline. And then as I start working on it, as I get closer to a scene, I'll, I'll maybe do more of an outline for that scene, even again, if it's just a few sentences. So I kind of do a process of like back and forth between, you know, elastic outlining and then kind of exploring and each one feeding to the other as I go. For years now, I have been uh, doing my first drafts by hand. I would go sit at Starbucks and write them just because there's nobody there that needs anything from me. You know, there's, there's no kids, there's no pets, there's no students. There's no household chores to tempt me away from <laughs> sitting down and writing. And then I would go ahead and type it up later and change it from there. I'm not doing that these days. I haven't done it for five months. I've been staying home, just sitting down and starting at the computer. I haven't been writing by hand at all for the last five months. And um, I don't really know why handwriting seems to work okay for me. You know, PCs didn't show up on the market until I was like 18 or 19. So I learned to write by hand. I didn't learn to type until I was 16 and took typing class. So maybe it's just that I learned to handwrite earlier. It feels different than when I sit at the computer, but I'm okay going back and forth either way. Pen or pencil? Oh, it's got to be pen, gel pen. (laughs) It's got to be a spiral bound notebook too. That's funny. Well, you are an extremely prolific writer. You've written over 50 novels and what did you say? Almost 200 short stories. So how are you able to produce so quickly? Is there something in your process you think that keeps you so prolific? I think thinking about it ahead of time helps a lot. It's almost like when you do sports, they tell you to visualize hitting the ball first so then you can hit the ball when it happens. So if I spend time during like the morning, well, usually I write in the morning, so maybe in the afternoon, I'm visualizing what I'm going to do the next day. Then I sit down and I can do it more easily. And like I said earlier, in a lot of ways you can think of writing as just making choices or decisions. And I usually can make those pretty fast. You know, whether they turn out good or not, maybe a different story, <laughs> but I, I tend not to belabor them too much. I think that helps a lot too. And of course, the longer you do it, the, in some ways, the easier it gets. Sounds like that's where the newspaper experience might have come into helping out. Right. 
So you've also written many tie-in novels, and those are novels that expand on an already established TV show or movie character. So an example would be Supernatural, the TV show, and you wrote a tie-in called Carved in Flesh. So what's it like to write a story based on characters that you didn't create originally? How do you take that and make it unique to your own vision? Yeah, those are a lot of fun because they exercise a very different set of creative muscles when I do those. I kind of look at it as being like if I was a script writer on a TV show or maybe my acting background comes in here, too, because, you know, if you're a director or an actor, you're usually doing somebody else's play or somebody else's script. So I, I see my job as I do want to tell an original story with these characters, but at the same time, I want to be true to who they already are and th- the way that they've been established. So I make it mine by trying to pretend almost like I'm trying to to recreate a performance, like I am pretending to be these characters, just as if I was acting a play where I had to be like somebody famous like Hamlet that's already kind of in your imagination before you might you know, step up onto the stage. It's it's weird in a way too, especially for something like Supernatural when there are millions of fans out there and you have to really yeah. not think about them. <laughs> and it, you can't please everybody because everybody has a different interpretation or experience of a work of art like that. And so if I look at the reviews sometimes, they tend to be positive, but every once in a while I get one that says, he obviously doesn't know Sam and Dean. And the next one, well, <laughs> he's the best writer who's ever written Sam and Dean. And I'm like, the only thing that's changed is the person. It's who read it, not me. And also with a, a show like Supernatural, there are so many seasons and so many episodes. Do you feel like you have to watch all of them before you can write something? So you have like the whole background or do you just dabble in and out? Yeah, it kind of depends on the the property and the different writers too. I mean, I started watching Supernatural when it began, so that helps a lot. But honestly, I have never had an editor of a tie-in. If they ask you, you know, are you a fan of XYZ TV show? And you say, I've never heard of it. They're like, it doesn't matter. Because you can find that stuff out. Fans hate to hear this, but what editors are looking for are people that can write novels and can work to deadline and are able to collaborate with people. Because people at the studio take a look at your outline and then your manuscript and you've got things you can do and things they want changed. So those skills are more important than, you know, knowing the TV series or the movie or whatever inside out. So I have read The Winter's Box, which had a really interesting concept, I thought, and several of your short stories from your collection, Dark and Distant Voices. And for me, they have sort of a Ray Bradbury feel to them, sort of a Twilight Zone-esque creepiness. And I'm wondering, do you have writers that you look up to or think highly of? They could be horror writers or of other genres that you admire their writing. Yeah, this is always a hard question to answer because a lot of times it's whoever I'm just focusing on right now that I'm trying to learn from. So, you know, Bradbury definitely was one early on. I remember discovering his anthologies in I think seventh or eighth grade and being really interested in the fact he had an interesting core concept for each story. Later on, when I was trying to figure out how could I write horror stories that were mine as opposed to just imitations of other people's. I ran across an anthology by a British writer named Ramsey Campbell called Alone with the Horrors. He started writing as a teenager and he's in his 70s and still writing today. So he's produced a ton of work and you could not collect all the short stories in one volume. So this thing, I was like the first 30 years of his career of short stories, but I read one after the other after the other. And I started seeing how he was able to focus on a really interesting concept or image and, and one that he didn't necessarily always explain all the way. So it still retained a, a kind of mystery. So, you know, for short fiction, especially, I would say Ramsey Campbell's really been a big one to to have influenced me. Well, I really enjoyed them because I used to love those 
you know, the Twilight Zones. They're scary, but they're more creepy than scary. They're like unsettling, I guess, would be the word I would use. And I really enjoyed those. Yeah. I think it's easier to do in fiction, to unsettle than to to literally scare somebody. But, you Mm -hmm. know, especially once you've encountered, I mean, if you're four years old and you're encountering the Wizard of Oz for the first time, you know, in the movies, you might be scared. But, you know, the 50th time you've seen it, probably not so much. So I think the older that we get, the harder it is to scare us, literally with fiction. Yeah. But I think unsettling us, I think can be done no matter mm-hmm. what age you are. So I have been late to the horror genre because of that anxiety I mentioned, like I can't watch horror films. I feel like because I'm always on edge, intentionally putting myself on edge seems like a bad idea. But I read, because of Amy's recommendation, Stephen King's nonfiction book about writing. And so that led me into reading some of his work. And you have a nonfiction book that's coming out in October about the process of writing horror called Writing in the Dark. So it's kind of a guide devoted to the craft of writing horror fiction. And you also have a newsletter that has writing and publishing tips as well. So what things are unique to horror writing that can make or break a a piece of fiction? Yeah, like I said earlier, empathy is a big one or lack of empathy. I think it's really important that you need to empathize with your characters, even if they're characters that are only on the stage for a short period of time, you know, before something takes them out, whether the monster eats them or whatever. I still think it's important to treat them with dignity and to make them as real as you can in the, in the space that you have. The other thing I think that's super important is to, to understand that horror is never about the monster or the evil or the scary thing, whatever it is, because all by itself, it's nothing. It's, it's only scary when it's perceived by humans and it's only scary when it's has an effect on humans you know whenever i'm doing teaching a class about this i'll say imagine a monster wandering around in a field and and that's it it's never scary (laughs) you know there needs to be a person there to be threatened by to to wonder is there a monster what's out there what is it what could it do to me and then the monster starts to interact with the person and then we worry about the person the horror stories are never about the monsters they're always about the effect of monsters on people or their fear of becoming a monster themselves and maybe losing control and i think a lot of horror because it's so obvious especially in the movies i mean the monster whatever it is just looms larger in our imagination but without people it's it's nothing those are two big things i think that are yeah. really important for her when you were talking about the empathy and the monster it made me think about mary shelley and frankenstein so i'm curious as a as a horror writer and maybe this isn't exactly what your writing does but i think about i say villain but maybe that's the monster too but i always wonder when writers write the evil thing whatever that is how much is it necessary to make them relatable? One of the things that when I have my students read Frankenstein, we talk about the monster, what's going on with the monster. Do you ever deal with that, whether you know it's in your writing or with your students? Well, sure. Like I said, you know, horror stories can be about the people becoming monsters or fighting becoming monsters or having to deal with the fact that they've got something dark inside them because it's being brought out by the circumstances of the story. You can do that. I think that's a really important thing to explore in horror fiction. We were talking about your students. You're a professor of English at Sinclair College in Dayton, Ohio. What types of English classes do you teach? And do you think that teaching helps make your writing better? Yeah, I teach the composition courses and 
fiction writing. I'll teach short story writing, novel writing. Sometimes I'll teach freelance writing, which is nonfiction magazine articles. I also have a class in writing to publish where we talk about all the stuff you need to know in order to publish. And yes, I've learned as much, if not more, from teaching writing than I have from writing myself. Because spending so much time trying to think of what is this person trying to communicate? Who are they trying to write to? How can I help make it better? How can I help them say this better? Just plugs directly back into your own work. I know for myself with teaching students, and I teach middle and high school, but I also am a freelance writer. And so I feel like my experience knowing what it's like to have an editor say, I don't like this, change this or whatever. I think it makes you a little more understanding or you try to convey that to students that, you know, I know what that's like. And so here's my mindset when somebody offers me constructive criticism. I feel like that helps students understand that I'm not just being an evil ogre. I'm trying to make their writing better. And so sometimes I think that because they know that I have that experience myself, it makes them a little more understanding. Do you feel like that helps you with your students? Yeah, I do. If they like look me up on the web, sometimes they're a little intimidated because of how much I've published. And that's kind of increased a bit over the years, which sometimes bothers me because it's, you know, puts a little barrier between us, I suppose. But in general, no, I think it's really important. I read somewhere once that to be a teacher, you have to be able to do a thing, whatever it is. Then you have to be able to understand how you do a thing. Then you have to be able to communicate to other people how to do the thing. So, so you need like three steps. And I think it's super important because a lot of teachers of something, they'll teach it as an academic subject, but they don't do it. And I think you need to have a balance of understanding it as an academic subject, as well as a, as a practical thing that you do in the real world. So tell our listeners how they can find you on social media. And if they want to sign up for your newsletter to get those writing tips, how would they sign up for that? Uh, you can just go to my website. It's just timwagoner.com. I have a link to all my social media. There's a contact tab that allows you to sign up for my newsletter. Okay, great. Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We're back with Tim Wagner and with Carrie. And literally this week, I have no idea what you're going to talk about. Carrie. So what have you been reading? Amy, you know that I have been very, very slowly reading the book Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. It's kind of a long book. I want to say it's like close to 500 pages. This was a book that I had wanted to read. Maybe our guest Alex Harrow had mentioned it, but this is a book that literally I finished it last night. And it took me a very long time, I think because the setting of the book is so weird that it took me the entire book to wrap my head around what it's about. So there's this universe and there's nine planets, but all of these planets are seeped in necromancy. So all of the people from these different planets, they have these abilities. And so Gideon the Ninth, she's sort of uh, the fighter of the Ninth House. And her necromancer is named Harrow. And apparently you don't find this out until the end of the book. And I'm, I was reading this on a Kindle. Once I got to the end of the book, then they had the glossary <laughs> that explained everything. And I was like, 
Oh, now I'm understanding. Necromancers in this universe are very weak. They don't have a lot of physical strength. And so they have to have a, a warrior with them to protect them. And so Gideon the Ninth is the warrior of Harrow the Ninth, who is her necromancer. With Harrow, she has bone magic. And so what she's able to do is say that there's a dead body buried in the ground. She can, through her magic, force the bones to come up and make the skeleton stand and fight for her. All the other people from the houses, they all have different magic. Representatives from each of the planets go to this other planet. And so then there's this story within a story. So it's about how these representatives from these different planets come to this one location and then people start dying. So they're there for one reason and then these murders start happening. So it was at that point because I was like, I understand a mystery. I understand what's happening. And so then I I feel like I was able to get a little bit more invested in the story. Like I said, this book was pretty mind-blowing and it took me the full book to even wrap my head around it. So I know, Amy, I had texted you, you know, in the last several weeks, I'm not sure about this book. I don't know what I think of this book. And I even threatened to call your husband because he's reading it. Is he still reading it? Well, he's on to the second one now, which I think is called, I think might be called Harrow something. Yes, I think it's Harrow the Ninth. Anyway, I threatened to call Chris and just have a conversation because I just felt like I wasn't getting it. So, like, I totally have mixed feelings about this book now that I have finished it. And other than Chris, I don't know anybody who's read this. So maybe what I need to do now is just kind of read some reviews because I I feel like a lot of times if I read a book that I'm sort of like, uh, it helps me to read reviews and then I develop, I guess, a greater appreciation from it. If you're the type of person who loves just weird stories, I would recommend it because I found it to be, you know, definitely mind-blowing. Say, I'll have Chris call you and you <laughs> can talk. <laughs> but this one, it was nominated for a Hugo. So there's definitely a lot of people who did like it. Oh, yeah. I know, Amy, you've said with reading some fantasy, if there's too much of a learning curve, like I know you've talked about, if the characters in a story speak this made up language or they have different words for things, it's hard for you to visualize. Well, I felt with this, typically I don't have that problem, but this was so outside of... I guess my expectation maybe, you know, but like I said, by the end of it, and then there is a glossary, you know, for the people like me who need it. Before I'd finished it, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to read this one book and I'm not going to read anymore. But by the end of it, I'm like, well, now I'm intrigued. (laughs) So I sort of want to find out what happens later. Maybe this would be a case where reading the physical copy would have been better so that you would have known that that glossary was there and you could have referred to it. Maybe. Well, Tim, what have you been reading? Well, I guess Ramsey Campbell's been on my mind lately because I've been reading some of his novels just back to back, just to catch up with his vast amount that he's produced. Also, I've been reading some books by uh, Eric Meisel. He's a psychotherapist that specializes in working with people who are creative. And uh, I recommend his books to everybody who is an artist of any kind. His latest one that came out was uh, called Unleashing the Artist Within. And like a lot of writing guides will talk about the craft of writing and they might talk a little bit about the the mental and emotional aspects of it, but that's all he does is he talks about the mental and emotional 
realities and challenges that creatives experience. The very first book of his I ever read was called maybe Living the Writer's Lives, something like that. And when I read it, I was like what I had lived for the last 20 years and had learned on my own. And I was like, oh my God, I wish I'd had this book when I was starting out. He's got one called Creativity for Life I recommend to people. And if, if I was going to design like a graduate program for creative writing of my own, I'd have an entire class devoted to this book because it talks about how to deal with rejection and how to deal with performance anxiety and how to deal with not knowing which direction you want to go in and how to deal with trying to keep a career going over the long haul and, and all kinds of things. And so he's got dozens of books of various aspects of, of creativity and the psychology of it. I find it really useful, not just for me, but also because a lot of it is how to help yourself as a writer. It gives me more insight on how I can help other writers as a teacher. That sounds really fascinating. Sometimes that creativity, I mean, is so incredibly personal. And so when you're dealing with criticism, unless you think about it in a certain way, it can almost seem like they're attacking you personally. I mean, even though that's, if it's constructive criticism, you shouldn't think about it like that. But because creativity is something that comes from your mind and it's so personal, it might be hard not to take it personally when somebody criticizes your work or when you're reading reviews or, or what have you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, if, if something's personal to you, I mean, it's just like opening yourself up and, you know, making yourself vulnerable in a, the, the deepest way. And then to have somebody say, well, you know, I just didn't like this. It's difficult not to equate that with them saying they don't like you. Right. So when you're, you know, not reading things for teaching your classes or about creatives, do you often read horror yourself or do, do you get enough of that writing it and you like to expand what you read? Yeah, you know, I go through cycles. Sometimes I'll read horror to get myself in the mindset of it. Other times I'll read stuff that maybe I haven't experienced a lot of. Like uh, I didn't read Westerns growing up. So every once in a while, I'll check a Western out. Same with romance novels. I might do that. Might be a mystery. Sometimes it's because I've seen people on social media, like writers I respect, say, you know, I've read this mystery or this crime novel or whatever that seems really good. And so I'll read it for just to see what this particular writer is doing. In terms of reading stuff that's like just for fun, that kind of went away a long time ago. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I tell people that the bargain that you make kind of like the devil's bargain you make when you become a writer is you you end up losing the ability to fall through the page into a story the way you had before that because you're always on some level thinking about it like a craftsperson trying to learn. So in order to do the thing you love the most, you kind of give up the thing you love the most or at least an aspect of it. Then I always tell them it's totally worth it because it is. But sometimes I miss just being so excited and being able to fall into a story and being swept away by it, you know, the way I was. That sounds like a creepy story. You have to give up the thing you love in order to get the thing you love. Yeah. It sounds a lot like life. I know that's pretty, pretty by itself. Well, Amy, what have you had going on? Well, I am totally into my fall reading focus right now. I sometimes like to read seasonally and it's a little bit crisper air, you know, in the last few days. And so I have a whole stack of scary, creepy books that I want to read before the end of October. And the one I'm going to talk about today was a book that I saw on a list. Maybe it was a book riot list for best books about haunted houses. And as far as scary books go, one of my favorite subgenres is the haunted house. And I think I've talked before about my love of The Shining by Stephen King. And there's another one I also really like called The Woman in Black by Susan Hill, which is also a really good movie. So the book that I'm going to talk about today is called Kill Creek by Scott Thomas. And it came out in 2017 and it's his debut novel. 
it was also nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. And Thomas, he's worked in TV, writing scripts and producing shows on various channels like the Disney Channel and MTV. And this is an important note because I can definitely see this being made into a film or, or a series. It's extremely visual and cinematic with its detail. So it's sort of like watching a movie in your head. Although I think many horror books are easy to visualize like that. But the basic premise of this book is that there are four famous horror writers. There's three men and one woman, and they are the most well-known living horror writers of their time. They have their arms twisted a bit into doing a publicity event by spending Halloween night at a house outside Kansas City that is considered one of the most haunted houses in the country. And they agree to meet there and be interviewed by this young, brash web influencer who runs a website that Insta streams his live videos to millions of followers. So their experiences in the house that night are not that dramatic. Occasionally, each one of them would maybe see something out of the corner of their eye, but then it's gone. So there's no real haunting to speak of that goes on on Halloween night. But it's after this overnight experience that the house begins to have its effect on them. Usually when I'm talking about the book I'm reading on the show, I usually give a more detailed description of the book, but I'm afraid really to say too much because I don't want to give anything away. But I did not see where this book was going at all. There were lots of points where I thought I had figured it out, but then there'd be another twist or a turn But what I will say is that much of the tension in this book is based on each writer's own fears and what they are most scared of. So one of the things I loved most about this book really has nothing to do with horror, though. It's about basically being a book lover and being in awe of the process of the writer and their words. So at one point, one of the horror writers, Sebastian, is looking at the books on the shelves at the haunted house. And the author writes, He was not above calling a book unreadable, but their literary merit wasn't important at this moment. They were words strung together to represent the firing of neurons and the transferring of information through synapses. They were human minds set into paper, and Sebastian loved every single one of them, even the ones he found disposable. So I definitely saw the influence of Stephen King in this novel. So if you're a Stephen King lover, you should try this one out. It is action-oriented, as many of King's are, but doesn't do the amount of character building that I love in King's novels. So I was a little disappointed in that. But it reminded me of a cross between Misery and The Shining. And if you're a Stephen King fan, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you are a little bit chicken when it comes to scary books, most of this book is not graphic or gory, but it does get pretty intense at the end. It did not make me want to leave the lights on at night or make me scared in my own home like some others I have read. So that's sort of a sweet spot for me because I don't like feeling scared long after I read a book. So you can gauge your comfort level accordingly, I guess, based on that. But I highly recommend this book for those who like scary, and I look forward to reading more by this author. And I just read right before we got on here that they are developing this to be a limited series on Showtime. Cool. So I really liked it. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be asking Tim Wagner his top five. We are back with Tim Wagner and we're going to ask him his top five. Question number one, Tim, you live with a falcon named Friday and an owl named Archimedes because your wife is a falconer. So what is the top awesome and or weird thing about living with birds of prey? Top awesome thing is just 
getting to know them in a way you never do when you just see them in the wild or, you know, maybe see videos about them. And especially my wife will tell me stuff because if I just observe them, I wouldn't quite know what I'm looking at sometimes. But I can ask her questions about, you know, like how much can they all see and uh, how far can he turn his head around and what's this sound he makes means. And and it's also just cool to be around and watch them interact with the environment, the things that they look at and the way they behave to it. You know, I was talking about dinosaurs earlier. It's cool to imagine that these things are descendants of dinosaurs, too. And sometimes the way they move, it does strike you as, as really alien. And then there are times that especially the owl that the owl kind of acts like a cat in a lot of ways. It's weird because <laughs> we have two cats and they just ignore the owl. It's like they're all buddies, I guess. I don't know. It, it is interesting to see just how different that they are from us. And it's weird to hear the noises. The owl's inside the house. The owl's actually in a big cage on wheels that my wife made. And he's just here until she can get him rehabbed. He's supposed to go back to the Raptor Rehab Center where she volunteers at. And it's weird to have him in the house because you'll just hear these strange noises sometimes that I'm afraid one day if a burglar ever does break in, I'm just going to think it's the owl flapping around in the middle of the night. <laughs> uh, the, weirdest, the weirdest things about them is that, you know, having to get over my wife bringing the frozen mice out of the freezer or thawing them in the sink or whatever. And she's not thrilled about doing this, but she's not squeamish and I'm not super squeamish, but I'm not too thrilled about it. Sometimes stuff happens that it doesn't make sense. Like yesterday, uh, we have two dachshunds and the one's like 15 and the other's five. And my little boy dachshund, he found a mouse just lying randomly in the front room, like 30 feet from the owl cage. And we had to get it out of his mouth before he swallowed the whole thing. And so there's just this kind of unexpected gross adventures that, <laughs> that occur with the birds. Tim, I think I'm going to borrow, I, I just wrote it down. You said unexpected gross adventures. I really feel like that applies to living with my sons. So I'm stealing that. Just want you to know. You're welcome to it. <laughs> so do they have unique personalities like a dog or a cat would? Yeah. At least to hear my wife tell it because she works with so many of them at the Raptor Center. Yeah. I mean, within their own range of behavior, just like a cat or dog. You know, they do have their own personalities. I mean, their brains aren't developed the same way as a cat and dog. So maybe the range isn't as much. But yeah, they do have their own personalities and their own quirks, which is, is really interesting because you just don't think about that with animals that we perceive as just kind of wild animals in nature. So you've mentioned that Lawrence Block's columns on fiction writing and Writer's Digest magazine were important for you as a writer and as a teacher yourself. You enjoy basic composition as much as teaching creative writing. So what's the top piece of advice you tend to find yourself giving students over and over again? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, for the, the composition students, the advice is more a message or something I try to model and just inculcate in them is that you can do this. The writing is a function of the human brain, just like speaking and moving is. And I tell them, I say, it sounds like a joke, but I mean, as long as your brain is healthy, <laughs> you know, you don't have any problems, you can write. <laughs> And, you know, maybe that you're not going to be Shakespeare. I mean, who can be? But everybody can get better. The other thing is that I've noticed after I've been teaching for 30 years and in general, writing ability is pretty damn common. It's as common as dirt. Even the amount of people that could become professional at it is super high. It's just whether or not people choose to try to develop it. So, I mean, it's one of the messages that I, I like to get across to people is that you can do this. Um, it may not come easily to you and it, or automatically. But it is something you can do and it's something you can get better at. I find that 
with my students, there seems sometimes to be a disconnect between I'll say, what is it you want to say? And they'll say it. But then it's like there's a disconnect between their brain and their hand. It's almost like there's a stop sign in between. And I find like with my son, sometimes if they're struggling, and even if it's just like to answer a a question that requires a little bit longer answer, they can say exactly, and it's thoughtful and it's well explained. But if I say, okay, no, write that down, then they just stop. And I don't know what I said, you know, and it's like, well, say it again. And I'm like, just write down what you said. What you said was great. Do you ever find that that happens with your students? All the time. When I was in college undergrad, I worked at the uh, writing center and I would find that inevitably with students. They'd come in, they wouldn't know what to write about. I'd just ask them to tell me something that happened to them recently. And they would basically speak an entire essay from beginning to end. And I would say, that's wonderful. Write that down. And they'd say, what did I say? Um, (laughs) I don't don't know for a fact, but I suspect the part of us that speaks is not the same as the part that writes, even though we still Mm -hmm. draw on the same bank of words. So I, I often tell students to either have somebody like play secretary and write down the stuff you say, or record yourself. We spend thousands upon thousands of hours more putting concepts into spoken words than we do written words. And I I really think that trying to take advantage of that fact, you know, even if it adds an extra step where you got to like record it and listen to yourself and then write it down, I think it getting that down is super important for people. And, And I do. I think that disconnect is a very real one between the brain and the hand for most people. The Lawrence Block that you're referring to, was he a mystery writer? Yep. Yeah, I used to love reading. He had a series about a burglar named mm-hmm. Bernie. I don't remember his last name, but I Rose, and Rose Bernie Bar. was yes, and Bernie was a lovable thief. He usually stole like paintings and things, but I used to love reading those when I was like in my early 20s. Yeah, he was a favorite of mine. Yeah, those are great. I dedicated uh, writing in the dark to him. Oh, and really? I, yeah, and I had the publisher send him an advanced reading copy. All right. Question number three. Many people associate horror novels with horror movies because many of the great ones are based on books. So do you watch horror movies? Do you get scared by them? And if so, what is a top movie that you'd recommend? Yeah, I do watch horror movies. I've been, like I said earlier, since I was maybe four, (laughs) Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And I love them. I'll watch the good ones and bad ones. I don't really care. They're all fun one way or the other. And usually I learn something one way or the other. They're very different. I think people who try to write just based on what they see in horror films, I mean, horror films can use movement and sound and shadow and all kinds of things that you can't reproduce on the page. So it's, I think you have to use very different skills. To, I think it's why sometimes the horror stories don't always make for the best visual adaptions. I, I think people can't figure out how to translate one form into another. I don't really get scared too often in horror movies. I think the very last time was when I watched The Babadook just because, uh, yeah, the creature in it, the Babadook, is a sinister kind of figure from a child's book come to life. And he's got this like really scary voice. And the first time he started speaking, I just turned the video off and I'm like, nope, I'm going <laughs> to come back to this in a little bit here. And I was all alone in the house. And uh, that's about the only time. I mean, I'm, I'm so used to so many of these things that I don't really get scared. And um, in yeah. terms of movies that, you know, I'd recommend, uh, The Babadook's a good one. I like that one a lot. I like movies where, it tends not to explain everything, kind of leaves it up to your interpretation, because I think that if these things actually happened in real life, we'd never have somebody come out and give us a comforting explanation. We just never know exactly why this was happening. I know that that explanation comforts people and it makes the horror 
sort of controllable and understandable, but I kind of like that sense of mystery. So the Babadook's like that. I have my theories. If anybody wants to email me and talk about it, <laughs> I have my theories about what the ending means, but uh, yeah, the movie definitely leaves it up to you, yourself. So I like that. I think it's a really good one. Plus, you know, it's a movie really about a mother trying to deal with having a special needs child, a single mother, not difficult it is. And I really liked Hereditary, even though a lot of people didn't like the ending. I thought the ending was really cool. But that one shows like a, a mother's grief. Uh, the actress, Tony Collette, I mean, her portrayal of grief is just searing in that movie. So I tend to like them when they have like a weird, cool concept, but also have a really nice under of characterization in them, too. I have a daughter who loves to watch horror movies, but also we watch a lot of horror TV series with her. That's the way that we can sort of bond with her as a teenager. And um, we started one recently that I recommended to Carrie, and now Carrie's watching it. It's called The Terror. It's on Hulu, but it's based on a book by Dan Simmons of the same name. But it's set during the early 1800s when the British fleet was trying to find the Northwest Passage and they get stuck in the ice. And it's a, it's a true historical event. They, they all end up dying. And you know that from the beginning. But what Simmons does in the book is he also introduces a monster that's tracking them. I haven't finished it yet. I think Carrie's closer to finishing it than me, but it has been really interesting. But it's more of like a natural disaster horror, you know, like besides the monster that that's introduced. It's yeah, it's, it's a little bit different. You know, it's funny because I don't even think about that being, because I would say for myself, I do not like horror movies. Movies that are scary, I don't like them. And so for me, I wouldn't even necessarily consider the terror a horror, but maybe it's because I have like gradients of horror. Maybe that's what it is. It's, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> It's not horror in the traditional sense, although there is a monster in it, but it's more of the horror of like watching all these people die. Yeah, I, I guess so. I don't even know what I think of horror. I guess when when I think of horror films, I think of Chainsaw Massacre and Friday. What was the guy? The Oh, Freddy Krueger? Yeah, that's what I think about with horror movies. I can handle movies maybe that are about monsters or things that are unexplained easier than I can handle horror films about something that looks like a human being doing something to somebody. Yeah. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah. Like, I feel like it gets very complicated in my head because like I said, if, if you had said to me, Hey, Carrie, there's this horror show on Hulu. I'd be like, not interested. I don't know. Maybe it's because it's like a historical piece and it's like, Oh, this is in the past. So this mm -hmm. can't, this is going to happen like right now in 2020. Although maybe 2020 is pretty weird. We can I know. Yeah, anything can happen at this yeah. point. So question number four, you've said that you enjoy musicals. What is the top thing you think a musical can achieve with its audience that a standard dramatic play cannot? The thing I enjoy about them, I guess, is that there's this sort of wonderful alternate reality where people just, you know, they'll burst into song and dance <laughs> and music comes out of the air, out of nowhere and it's all perfectly normal for them. It's just fascinating to me to, to watch, to try to imagine this kind of alternate reality. Plus, they're just fun. My daughter showed me a video series by a guy who, uh, he's like a music expert, and what he does is he talks about the music in films and things. And he was talking about like the rules of musicals are that when the emotions become too strong, characters sing, and when they become too strong to sing, they dance. And I hadn't <laughs> thought about that, but I, you know, thinking backwards, all the musicals I've watched, I think that's part of what I like about it is it's just this emotion that kind of bursts out that you tend not to get in other forms of drama at all. 
So yeah, I think that's why I like him. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I really like Finian's Rainbow. It's an older one with, uh, actually, Francis Ford Coppola directed it, but early 70s, maybe. Fred Astaire's in it, and you know he's still great, even though he's well in his 70s at that point, Petula Clark. And it's got a level of fantasy in it. Petula Clark is the daughter of uh, Fred Astaire. They're, they're Irish people who have come. He's got this idea. He has stolen a, a crock of gold from a leprechaun, and he believes that if he can like plant it near Fort Knox, it will grow into a fortune, because it's like his idea of investment. They'll just magically do that. And the leprechaun is coming to get his gold back. They go to Rainbow Valley, which racism is a big part of the play too. It's like silly, but there's also this undercurrent of all the people that work in this tobacco collective there. And many of them are black. And Keenan Wynn plays this, I don't know, governor who is old style, kind of the Southern racist. And he's a parody of that. And eventually, at one point, the leprechaun turns him black so he can see what it's like. In the mythical state of Missitucky is where it takes place. Um, <laughs> Missitucky? Yeah, that's what they call it. They don't say it in the movie, but in the play, it's Missitucky. But yeah, it's just this wonderful, lighthearted fantasy that's also blended together with a lot of serious stuff about being human and some, like racism, especially since it was made back in the late 60s, early 70s. It's just really wonderful. I really like it a lot. Wow, that's really awesome. I love hearing about one that I know nothing about and that it's Missitucky. How awesome is that? <laughs> Tim, do you feel like when you see a musical, whether it's a film version or live, I feel like there's just so many different layers. I guess it's like a book or sometimes a song. I have to see it or listen to it over and over and over again. And each time I get something different out of it. Do you feel that's the case? Yeah, I do. And especially because, you know, you've got the actor's performance. There may be something going on with the choreography as there's dance. There's something going on with the music. There's something going on with the lyrics. The lyrics might have wordplay to them that you might not catch, you know, as it goes by so fast the first time. So, yeah, I do find them really rich that way. All right. Last question. October is a month when many people delight in scary things and all things Halloween. So is there a top Halloween tradition that you like to do every year? You know, not really a top one. I mean, we bring out the Halloween decorations, although my office looks like that year round, but we bring them out for the, <laughs> the, the rest of the house. I may watch more you know, like horror movies than I usually do to get in the mood, or I might pull out like old childhood favorites. Don't think it's going to happen this year. I don't know what's going to happen, but I really enjoy when the kids come around for trick or treat. So that's a lot of fun just seeing their costumes, especially the little, little ones that can like barely walk. Those are my <laughs> favorites. It's all like brand new to them. You know, it's magical to them. And I love to see that. So tell us about this office. What kind of things do you have in your office? Um, I have a lot of pop figures, those little Funko pop figures. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, my wife can't stand because she hates staring black eyes. She, hates, <laughs> she thinks they're ugly. But I have a whole bunch of those, and most of those are horror. And I've got some other little things here, like action figures or little kind of uh, monsters in front of me. There's a uh, the, the cryptid Mothman, and then I've got a dinosaur and a werewolf. It's it's fun having these things around. It reminds me of when being a kid, and it's kind of fun to have uh, that sort of visual inspiration around. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for taking time out of your Saturday to speak with us. It's been a lot of fun learning from you today. Oh, I had a great time. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.